We have been singing of something of the attributes of our God. And so we want to read about this great God of ours. I'm turning to the 96th Psalm. I trust you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning. Psalm 96, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Psalm 96, from verse 1 to the end of this psalm. The psalm begins with the word of exhortation to us. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in his faithfulness. May God be pleased to bless to us this portion of his word this morning. Let us pray together. Our Father, we, your people, would come to you this morning with that wondrous and amazing truth that we are your chosen people, that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation, that we are those who have obtained mercy. No, our Father, you have made us thus in order that we might exalt your name together. And you have poured out these blessings upon us, that we may be those who rejoice and are glad in you, that you have put a new song in our hearts and in our mouths, even praise to our God. And so, our Father, 
we have come together. We have sought to worship you this week personally. We have sought to walk before you this week individually. But now, O oh God, we come corporately. We come to unite our hearts. We come to unite our voices. We come together to bow before you, to acknowledge that you are our God, that you are our Lord and our Savior. And we come to praise you for your mercies to us. We come to thank you for the way in which you have watched over us this past week, how you have directed our steps, how you have supplied all of our needs, how you have heard our prayers, and how you have made yourself known to us and given to us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. We come, our Father, before you to bring our praise, to render our thanks. And we come, O oh Father, to pray, to ask for those who are not with us here this morning. Father, some are Philip Island at that youth camp. Some, our Father, are traveling. Some are sick and weary. Some, our Father, are troubled and anxious. Some are serving you in other places. Our Father, we thank you that you know them altogether. We thank you that you're not an ignorant God who has to be informed by us. For you know each one tenderly and completely. You know where they are. You know what they are doing. You know what they need. You are sufficient for each one. And therefore, Father, we pray that as we ask for mercy for ourselves, you will continue to be merciful to them and be to them this day that which they need. Your strength, your comfort, your grace, your enabling, that they may know what it is to rest in you, to hope in you, and to trust in you, and to find once again, great is your faithfulness. Father, we come with our prayers and petitions, and we come with our confession. For we have all sinned this week against you. We have not loved you with all of our hearts. We have not always put you first in our life. We have not always looked to you when it comes to decision making. Forgive us, our Father, for our stubbornness. Forgive us, our Father, for our willfulness. Forgive us, O God, for our hardness of heart. Forgiveness, our Father, for our blindness. Pardon us, we pray of you. For we thank you that there is that blood that was shed for us. And that you are a God who through Calvary will remember our sins no more. And so we bless you that we can come and acknowledge what you know 
knowing that you will pardon and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Father, we come to your word. Help us to hear that still small voice. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And may your word feed us and enable us to focus on you that we may continue to rejoice and be glad in you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Father in heaven, the beginning of that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples Recorded for us in the sixth chapter of Matthew's gospel. And again, I encourage you to turn with me to this portion as we want to continue this little series on what I'm simply calling Pray Then Like This. Our Father in heaven, our first consideration in prayer, according to what Jesus teaches us here, is one of adoration, adoration. We stop and we consider and we meditate upon the the one before whom we are coming. We think about his might, we think about his majesty, we think about his power and his glory, we think about his dominion and authority. We think before we pray, We ponder upon this great God before whom we come and call Father. And that gives rise to the first petition in this prayer, to the the primary petition of this prayer. And that is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That is, may our Father in heaven be regarded as holy, as the the one who is to be reverenced, the one who is exalted above all others, and the one who ought to become more glorious in our eyes, more loved by us, and more adored by us. But how will this happen? How will his name be hallowed? Well, that takes us then to this second petition. Your kingdom come. That is that the the spirit of God, employing the preaching of the word of God, we would be caused to hear the voice of the son of God. And thus, Lay down our swords and yield to his saving power in our lives. That that King Jesus would reign alone in our hearts and in our affections. He being both Savior and Lord to us. And all to what end? Well, here this morning we come to that third petition 
in this prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The 10th verse of this 6th chapter. So here this prayer begins. And it begins with three petitions exalting God. His name, His kingdom, and His will. And this, says Jesus, this is how you should pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does this petition tell us? And what does it teach us? Well, the first point I would make this morning is this, that it tells us something about what our Father is like. It tells us what our Father is like. He has a will. And in Scripture, various words are, are, are used to, to set forth that very truth. Words that point to, to, to God's pleasure, to, to God's desire, to God's favor. Scripture also indicates that, that God's will is the final ground of all things. That is, that, that he can do whatever he desires. And his, his desires are, of course, inseparably linked to his character, to who he is. That what he does in his might and his power by his will accords with his wisdom and with his holiness and with his justice, and with his truth, all of his attributes surround, as it were, the working of his will. So it is that in the exercise of his will, our Father shows to us his might, his might. And this is declared to us in his act of creation. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. John wrote, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Creation was due to his will and his will alone. He displayed his might for his own purpose and for his own pleasure. And thus the authorized version of the King James Version puts it this way. Thou hast created all things... And for thy pleasure, they are and were created. Hinting at the very fact that it is by the exercise of his will, his might both created this world 
And by his will, he sustains this world. His will is the evidence of his sovereignty over all things. And then secondly, in the exercise of his will, our Father shows what, what I'm calling his mystery. His mystery. That is, God's ways are at times not our ways. And his thoughts, not our thoughts. You see, to be, to be honest, and I think we probably all realize this, that, that, that he does things at times that we just don't understand. He does things that we just can't comprehend. Let me, let me illustrate the point. I'm, I'm going to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Because what do we find here? Well, listen to this. Verse 1 of Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So, James, the brother of John, is killed. Peter is arrested. But what do we read in the 11th verse of this chapter? When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. James is killed. Peter is delivered. James is murdered. Peter is rescued. Why? 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 Why does one die and the other one is delivered? We're not told. Why do things happen in our lives for which we have no explanation? Theologians speak of God's secret will. God's purposes which are known only to him. You see, we see some of the pieces of the puzzle. Our Heavenly Father sees the whole picture. Deuteronomy 29, 29 simply says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And that's why we need to know God so that in the dark times when we don't have any answers to what's happening to us, it's then that we need to know him in order that we may trust him. For what is our father like? He will show us his might. At times he will show us a mystery. And then thirdly, in the exercise of his will, the Father shows his mercy. His mercy. 
And this is seen so wonderfully, so supremely, by Paul in Romans chapter 9. And I'm reading from verse 14 through verse 16. Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What's the Apostle Paul getting at here? Well, whose will is determinative here? Whose will is exercised to save here? Well, it's clear from Paul that it is God's. Now, the argument being developed here and, and, and the terms employed here are most significant, and I can only touch on a couple of them at this stage, but it appears to be unrighteous of God to, to give mercy to some and not to others. Jacob have as I loved, he saw have I, have I hated. The, 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 the context of the question. This is the question in verse 14. Is God unrighteous? Is he unjust? But you notice Paul responds in terms of God's mercy and compassion. Why? Well, because if God dealt with us in justice, if God dealt with us in righteousness, we would all be damned eternally because that's what we deserve. But Paul says, no, 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 I'm talking about God's mercy and compassion. For unless God expresses those sensitive and saving virtues, Everyone will be lost. Thus, salvation is not because of our will, verse 16, but God's will. And that's wonderful. And that's fearful. For what we see here is this. God is always wise. God is always true. God is always holy. God is always just. God is always righteous. God is always powerful. But he is not always merciful. He is pleased to show mercy, but he is not bound to show mercy. Hence the lesson of the Pharisee and the tax collector. God, be merciful to me the sinner. And the words of Jesus recorded by John in John 5 and verse 40, Jesus said to the crowd, you will not come to me so that you might have life. So, so why do people not come willingly to Christ? Because sin has bound their will. You say, Brian, what about free will? Yes, you have free will. And the demonstration of free will is this. We always naturally say no to God. 
Because our will is not free. It's bound by sin. It's bound by a whole being and nature. You coming here this morning, you willed to come here, but your will was driven by what? Your, your desire, your affections, what you wanted to do. Christ is freely despised and freely rejected. And men in nature and men by sin see no need of Christ. And they feel no need of Christ. And my friends, the gospel humbles people. It makes you stoop. It puts you on your knees and on your face before him. Because the gospel declares it's not your decision. It's not the result of your action, but of God who shows mercy. It's his will being done. And this will shall be done. Because this petition tells us and teaches us what our father is like. That he is mighty, he is mysterious, and he is merciful. And so he is to be feared, he is to be reverenced, he is to be sought, and he is to be called upon. And I wonder whether you've ever done that. Or have you thought, you can do it any time you like. No, 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 you can't. No, you can't. You need mercy, mercy from God. You will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It tells us what our Father is like. But then let me add to that. Secondly, it tells us what our future is to be like. What our future is to be like. Because for those of us who have obtained mercy, we are heaven-bound. And what do we see in the heavenly home? God's will being done. That's what the petition, that's what the text tells us. And how is God's will being done in heaven? Well, it is being done flawlessly. Because there's no sin in heaven. There's no more rebellion. There's no more anarchy. There's no more bitterness of spirit. There's no longer any attitude problems. In heaven, the divine will is eagerly anticipated, perfectly performed, and flawlessly embraced. And furthermore, the Father's will is done fervently. Think of the angels in heaven who serve with such fervor and intensity that they are called seraphim. A word which signifies to burn, indicating that these angels are on fire for God, delighting in doing his will with all their might. They're never weary of doing God's will, but serve him, as we read in Revelation 7, serve him day and night. In heaven, the Father's will is done flawlessly, fervently, and freely, freely. There's no pressure being applied. 
No incentive, as it were, being offered. Rather, pure delight and the honor attached to it. The angel's love being employed in the divine service. Freely they descend from heaven to earth, bringing messages from the throne. Being sent to serve, we're told in Hebrews 1, being sent to serve those who are those who inherit salvation. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this, I quote, Heaven, being a place of much joy, the angels would not leave it a minute were it not that they take such infinite delight in doing God's will. And then we can add another word. The word faithfully. To describe heaven's will, angels do nothing but what is commanded. And you know, there's a lovely, there's a lovely picture in Psalm 123 and verse 2. Listen to it. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he have mercy upon us. What's the picture? The steady, adoring gaze, awake and faithfully attentive to the master's call and command. The master only has to raise his hand and you're up on your feet ready to serve, anxious to serve, faithfully serving. So how is God's will done in heaven? Faithfully, obediently, with the master's word for its rule. Heaven is about doing God's revealed will, not our own. That will which is revealed to us in the scriptures. For the scriptures surely are our, our rule and our rejoicing. And so now, God's will is being done on earth. He is working out his sovereign purpose. He is doing his will. But my dear friends, the day is coming according to this prayer when with the new heavens and the new earth, God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will be heaven on earth. Saints and angels never tiring of doing God's will, but rather loyally, faithfully, lovingly, flawlessly, fervently, freely, faithfully honoring our glorious master and law. That's our future. Sheer delight in the Father's presence and sheer delight in doing his will. That's our future. But what of today? What of now? Well, this petition tells us what our Father is like. And this petition tells us what our future is like. And finally and thirdly, this petition tells us what our faith 
is to be like, what our faith is to be like. You see, there are two things that go hand in glove. The first is this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ, as Paul puts it in Romans 10, 17. And secondly, only in the word of Christ, only in the word of God is God's will revealed. We need God's word in order to know God's will. To know God's will and do it, we must know the very word that God has given. And so what do we discover in God's word concerning his will? Well, let me simply highlight three aspects, and then I'm done. And the first is this. What do we see? When we read of God's will for the believer, when we read of God's will for his people, what do we find? Sanctification. Sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So what is sanctification? Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Devoted to God, explains it and illustrates it this way. I quote, In both the Old and New Testaments, the language used for sanctification contains the idea of being devoted to a special purpose, withheld from ordinary use and treated with special care. And he illustrates it this way. As you walk through a department store, you may notice a piece of furniture with one word sign on it, reserved. You may see a similar sign on a table in a restaurant. Even if the piece of furniture is the only one left of the item you need, you may not have it. Even if there are no other tables free in the restaurant, you may not sit at the table marked reserved. They are being kept for someone else, however frustrating that may be to you. This is what sanctification means. God has put his reserved sign on something. Temple vessels, for example. Or on someone who thereby becomes a saint. A person reserved for the Lord. He marks us out for his personal possession and use. We belong to him and to nobody else, not even ourselves. Sanctification means we become fully devoted to God. End of quote. You see, my friends, by God's Spirit and through the instrumentality of His Word, God's people are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. That's sanctification. We're being transformed so that we may reflect the very attributes and attractiveness 
of the Lord Jesus. This life transformation takes place in the renewal of our minds, says Paul in Romans 12. And the instrument that he uses is the word of the gospel. And that's the importance of placing our lives under the preaching of God's word. God's will, my friends, is our sanctification that we become more and more like Jesus. And then God's word presents God's will for us is our submission to him. Submission. And by way of example and encouragement, I want to remind you of the words of Psalm 116, verses 12 and 13. You say, Brian, what are those? Well, listen to them. What is it? Psalm 116, verses 12 and 13. The question is raised, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And what is the answer? Is that, well, well uh, uh, I, I, will, I will give you this? No, no, no. What will I render to the Lord for all your benefits? The psalmist answers, I will take the cup of salvation. I will accept what the Father offers as an expression of my worship, my submission, my willing obedience, my trust in him, and my faith in him. I will take the cup of salvation. Now here's the interesting thing, my friends. Psalm 116 is one of the Hallel Psalms. That's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. These were the Psalms that were sung at Passover. Thus, this was a psalm sung by our Savior with his disciples before going to Gethsemane, where we hear those words, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And we know the outcome, don't we? Jesus took that cup. That cup prepared and presented by the Father. The cup of Psalm 116. The cup of salvation. Which was indeed the cup of sorrow and shame and suffering and sacrifice. That bitter cup of divine wrath. He took it up and he drank it dry. He accepted what the Father offered willingly, freely, submissively. Here was a point when the Father's will was being done on earth as it was done in heaven. And the question, therefore, that comes to you and that comes to me is this. Are we willing to accept the cup that the Father offers us? Whatever that cup may contain. Have you ever read The Triumph of John and Betty Stamm? Betty and her husband, John, were young missionaries in China. 
and were captured by the communists in December of 1934, stripped half-naked and marched in chains through the streets of their village. Betty was forced to watch as her captors chopped her husband's head off, and then she was beheaded. Many years before her horrific martyrdom, Betty Stamm wrote the following prayer. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with the Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Young people, that was a prayer of a young woman. This is not a mature age sin. This was a prayer of just a young person. Saying, Lord, whatever the cup, I take it and I'll drink it. A prayer that ought to be on the lips and heart of every child of God. For what did Jesus say? Whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what does God's word tell us about his will for us? It tells us about our sanctification. It tells us about our submission. And so to close, it talks about our salvation. Let me go back to that theme. A salvation, you see, which is demanded of us. For what does God command? Acts 17 and verse 30. He commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands it. Justice requires it. Christ preached it. And God expects it. Now, earlier in this message, I highlighted the fact of, the, of God's sovereign will in the realm of salvation from Romans 9. And, and by the way, you get the same thing in John 1, 12 and 13. He gives the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And yet here in the act, the apostle declares that the same God commands all people to repent. So is there a contradiction or something here? No. But there is a principle in Scripture which says, God's commands don't imply our natural ability to obey but highlight our inability to comply. 
In other words, God's commands come to us in order to show us our waywardness, to show us our weakness, to show us our wickedness, to highlight and underline our rebellion. It was in light of this humbling principle that St. Augustine declared this, my whole hope is only in thy exceedingly great mercy. Give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. Give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. What's he declaring? What does it mean? Lord, you command me to, to repent. God, how do I repent? Grant me the gift, O oh God, of repentance. It's a gift from you. Grant me the gift of repentance so that I may now repent and I will repent. Lord, you command me to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him? How can I believe? I don't want to believe. Lord, grant me the faith to believe so that I will believe. Lord, you command us to love God with all of our hearts, but my heart is so far from God. My heart is so cold against God. God, you, you need to give me your spirit. Give me your spirit. Give me your spirit in my heart who will pour out your love in my heart so that I may love you. My friends, here is, here is our honesty and our humility. None of us by nature can do what God requires us to do. Because our sin has poisoned us and our sin has imprisoned us and our sin has stirred us up to rebellion. So God, I need to repent. You commanded it. Heaven requires it. But Lord, I've got no interest. All I can say is God, in mercy, in mercy, come to me and breathe new life in me. Change my heart, O oh God. Help me to see my need. Help me to feel my need. Help me to desire what I need. Lord, make me a new creature in Christ Jesus. You see, this is salvation's basement. The reality of our own depravity. Our owning of our own ability. To do what God wills. Yet our glorious hope is this. Give, O God, what you command. And command whatever you will. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews put it this way. O God, equip us with everything good. So that we may do your will. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight. So I wonder this morning whether you recognize your need of him. He commands you. You see, the gospel is not simply a soft packaged invitation. It's the command of almighty God. 
He commands you to turn from your sin. He commands you to trust in His Son, for He alone is God. He commands you because a day of judgment is coming. He commands you. And our response is, Lord, then give me the grace that I need in order to be obedient to your command. The gospel cuts us to the deep. It humbles us and it puts us on our knees with nothing in our hands. It causes us simply to cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, all of God's commands are possible. With God, all commands are possible. With God, we're totally, utterly dependent upon him. For every obedience. Every prayer you offer has been instigated by the Spirit. Every desire to read His Word has been instigated by the Spirit. It's all the evidence that we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. That God has come to us in mercy. And made us anew. Oh God. Give me what you command. So that your will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. That's our petition. So let's pray together. I'm going to pray a prayer of John Wesley's that I think gathers up what this petition is expressing Wesley prayed, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low to you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Can you say amen to that this morning, dear friends? Can you say that? Oh, Father, work in us that which is good and well-pleasing in your sight. We only have one ground upon which we stand and upon which we come, and that is your mercy. And we thank you that as we sang, your mercy is more. Visit us with your salvation and work in our lives that which is good and pleasing in your sight for your own praise and glory. Amen. Amen.